Welcome to Lamestream here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. My name is Steve Cavendish. You can follow me on Twitter at Scavendish. If you like the show, rate, review, subscribe. Smash that subscribe button. Our guest on the show today, exit interview, J.R. Lind, a man of many different expertises. Is that a word? Expertises? <laughs> sure. I don't think Why it is. Why not? Um, I just one of the best all around writers in the city. How about that? Yeah, no, he's a very good writer. Uh, he's a very good person. Uh, a very funny dude. Um, and somebody that you want on, on your trivia team. Uh, yeah. so if you happen to be in Southern California and you have a spot <laughs> open, please call JR, former Jeopardy champion. Yep, he is uh moving to LA, so we had to get him in here on, on an exit interview, and we talked over an hour with him, so we're not going to do much conversing here on the front end or the back end. We, of course, are brought to you by the wonderful and amazing folks at Jasper's free parking, amazing food, you know, just one of the one of the more fun places that you're going to want to take your family, your business lunch, your, you know, friends. If you're going to sit at the bar, just go to Jasper's. That's really what you want to do. Initiative. I like that, Steve, to so do all my parts for me. I love that. Thank you for that. Uh, um, you know, doing your work for you so a, a ton of stuff with jr like uh hippodrome blogs and conference three conversations and walk a lot of walk a mile stuff and his path and journey through the media in nashville um his journey as a preds fan and how the the media coverage of the preds has evolved and changed i don't like if you know jr you know this interview probably is going to cover everything <laughs> so, so uh so we did and, and we had a great time talking with him hope you guys really really uh, enjoy it. However, before we do that, of course, go to Jasper's. Um, we are required. Uh, it's it's in our contract that when Music City Baseball puts out a press release via the media, Steve Cavendish, once he puts his head back together post explosion, needs to come on the show and say some words. So, Steve, explore the studio space. Congratulations to our fine friends at the Nashville Business Journal, this week's victim <laughs> of uh, Nashville Baseball Club, the Nashville Stars, whatever they're calling themselves these days. Uh, who managed to who managed to take them at their word that they would be starting construction in 2024? A number that is contradicted by stuff that is on their own website, <laughs> and yet they still have no capital B billionaire, and and the 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 easy pass for them is even bleaker now that. The capital B billionaire who was rumored for the long time, a long time, Bill Haslam, has set his sights on hockey instead, and has now become and is now on a path to being majority owner of your Nashville Predators. I, I love the um, they they've they're they're going to begin construction in 2024 in a site near TSU, and then the next paragraph is while there's no deal with TSU yet for any while, land. While there is no deal with TSU. And no there's, financing. There's no deal with the city for the land. No. <laughs> and by the way, have have they asked the neighbors around there if they want 35,000, 40,000 people coming into have, their neighborhood uh, uh, on a on a regular basis? Have they asked Major League Baseball if they can have a team yet? Have they asked somebody if they can have their money in order to buy somebody else's team? Yeah, um, that last part they may have. They, they might. They might have that. Oh I just, man! Here's the rule, folks. Here's the rule: can't take them seriously until they have an owner. They don't have an owner 
all they have is Hootie and Justin whoever J- else J- they've JT. signed up. Whoever else they've signed up to the, to put on a press release this week. They got the head coach at TSU. They so. got yeah. <laughs> they've got Eddie George. They've got Justin Timberlake. And we love these folks, by the way. I love every name we've just rattled off. But Absolutely. Like, but they're not. Who putting, doesn't love Hootie? They're not putting billions in. <laughs> yeah. No, they're not. They're not even. All they're right. not even putting millions in. No, I know. Are you? Uh, are are you? Are you? Do you feel better, or is it getting worse and worse every time this happens? It's getting just dumber. Like <laughs> like like the last time, at least that last time, at least they suckered somebody from New York City into writing this thing. I know. Come on, Nashville media, do better. I thought it was hilarious because like the headline had like three or four facts in it, and then in their own story, they basically say that none of these facts are are, are true yet. Yeah, that was my favorite Yet. part of the whole story. Yet. Yet. <laughs> Yet. Yet. Uh, all right. Well, um, okay. There's, baseball's not coming to Nashville. Yet. Um, I'm reporting that right now. JR, uh, but JR Lynn's not coming to Nashville again either. Uh, that You know what? That just sucks. It sucks that he's leaving. Uh, he was a gem. Uh, he was an asset to the market in so many different ways. He's and... not dead, but I mean, he's just leaving. Well, we're right, but we don't get to consume all of his content about Nashville now. We have to consume his content about I don't know, like in indie rock bands in West Hollywood. I don't know, <laughs> whatever he's going to be writing about now. Um, no, it'll be great. It's awesome. He's a brilliant writer, and he's also t- fun to talk to. Here was our conversation with J.R. Lind. J.R., it is great to see you. Welcome to the show. Exit interview. Sad to see you leave the town, but we are so great to have you here, and we're happy for you. How are you, sir? I'm wonderful. How are you guys? Like a, we are two, doing great. We're doing of great. my favorites in the whole sad. Thing. Wait, wait, sad. Steve don't, Steve, don't step on the compliment. Let him finish the compliment. <laughs> Let it live. No, fuck Let that. The compliment I'm sad. <laughs> all right. So uh, before we get into like your time here and all your favorite things and all the really awesome creative work that you've done, I would like you to give everybody sort of a quick Cliff Notes version of how you ended up going from military to writing about media and sports in Nashville. Can you give everybody like a quick version of how you how you got here to where you're going now yeah so uh i mean i always wanted to be well not always i wanted to be a weatherman i joined the service in 2002 and was discharged in 2006 and uh i was going to start in murfreesboro well i did start in murfreesboro at mtsu in august of that year this was after um earlier failed attempts at uh the university of alabama and a very short time at middle before i joined the service uh, in August of 2006, a friend of mine was working at the Lebanon Democrat, um, which at the time was six days a week, a very, very rare bird, the small town daily, uh, even rarer now. And uh, it was a small newsroom and they needed help for the November election. So he said, we'll throw you some money. And I said, Man, I'm not doing anything on a Tuesday in November. So <laughs> I did that. Um, by the end of the year, end of 2006, I was working there part time and then by the spring of 07, I was there full time and I was there until ooh, uh, 2009, I guess. And then uh, after Southcom had purchased the scene, I guess Liz was doing, um, Liz Garrigan was doing some restructuring stuff for Chris Farrell uh, with the city paper and the post. They were hiring two reporters. They were hiring a metro government reporter and uh, the Post needed a real estate reporter. And I want to keep everybody keep that in mind. This is 2009. <laughs> uh, so uh, the great Joey Garrison, uh, who then went to the Tennessee and is now with 
I guess he's, with, he's in the White House press secretary. He's in the White he's, House he's, press yeah, corps now. Was hired to cover metro government. I was hired to cover real estate uh, during the largest real estate downturn in 70 years. So um, <laughs> shortly thereafter, as happens, there were some more layoffs. But I uh, am like a cockroach most of the time and realized that being a real estate reporter during the biggest real estate downturn in 70 years was not going to be enough. So <laughs> I had made myself sort of invaluable in other ways. I hopped on a lot of like sports business at the time. And I did a little bit of court stuff. Tom Wood was still there doing most of that. Uh, you know, I just kind of ingratiated myself into every department I could. The guys at the scene let me write music first. And then I wrote, uh, started writing a little bit of sports for Jim Ridley. Uh, the first, I think, real notable sports thing I did was an explainer of why uh, everybody in Nashville should be happy that the Titans picked up Randy Moss. And I stand by it, even though he became... <laughs> the fastest offensive lineman in NFL history when he was here. And, uh, you know, um, so I was at the the scene and then the city paper through its demise. And then the post for ooh, more than seven years, it was November, 2009 through, you know, August, 2016 patch, which is a, a big national hyper local news thing that at the time was worn run by Warren St. John, who has written some great books about Alabama football. And also when he worked for the New York Times coined the term metrosexual. Uh, nice. He wanted to, at the time, wanted to take Patch into the top X number of media markets. And a friend of mine, Mark Torrance, who's from uh, Williamson County, was a big Preds guy, was working for him. And he was like, do you know anybody who might be interested? Uh, Steve had just come back uh, because it was right after Jim had passed away. It was through no fault of Steve's own, a pretty rough time at the scene um and the post at that time the city paper having gone into the great beyond so i took that job uh i was there for uh, almost exactly two years uh and for the one and only time in my career i was the victim of a journalism layoff so then i freelanced for all kinds of stuff for about seven months uh and then patrick rogers at the scene posted a reporting job and i i think that was just an adding i think they were just adding a job i don't think anybody had left I, I did find out this week I'm responsible for Stephen Elliott being with the various newspapers because apparently he like cold emailed Stephen uh, here right after I left to get that job at the scene in the post. So you're welcome. So yeah, I started back <laughs> at the scene in uh, April uh, of 26, no, 2019. And uh, obviously I've been there through, well, I don't know, this is up on Friday. So yesterday would be my last day and real life tomorrow is my last day. And and this uh, this that was the short version, right? That was the clip. Yeah, that's sixteen years of, of, of professional okay. writing. So let, let me let me go back because I want Steve kind of to answer this question as well to some yeah. degree. Um, I'm an admirer of both of your. This is the Mutual Admiration Society. I'm an yeah. admirer of both of your writing, and I'm just curious the mastery of the language and the art of writing itself. Did did both of you have that obsession, that passion, that that thing? Did you notice it at a young age? Were you did you enjoy and love crafting? you know, words and stories at like in middle school, like where did the two of you figure it out? My mom's got stories that I wrote in elementary school and printed on, you know, print shop. You guys remember print shop? Print shop. The Apple, the Apple. Wow. That's a deep cut right there. Yeah. She's probably still got those somewhere. So that's, I mean, that's probably where it started. And then I worked on the high school newspaper uh, in Hendersonville. And that's really when I was like, this is what I need to do. So I would say like, you know, I mean, you say you want to be all kinds of things when you're a little kid, but I think by the time I was certainly like late in high school, I knew that that was the direction I was going to go. 
after having, I'll never forget my senior English teacher wrote in my yearbook that a good reporter always makes people mad enough to care. So you should be great at it. Um, <laughs> Jared's being pretty modest here. Writing, writing is not something that's very easy for me. Uh, what's the Dorothy Parker quote about? I hate writing, but I love having written. Uh, the yeah. feeling of having written and Jr. can do things on deadline that I cannot. Jr. would often look up on press days at City Paper, realizing that he had not had a co- did not have a column ready. Come into an office with Stephen Hale and I, and uh, work pound out kind of like what the idea for the column was, and then about an hour later, turn it in, and it would take me most of the rest of the day to go through tabs of various. Arcane references that Jr. had managed to slip into his copy in the hour that it took him to write it. Yeah, my my editors uh, often talk about their fever dream Firefox tabs that they have to open after they read me. Yeah, I always think about being. I think a lot of times I sort of approach journalism the way that I think a lot of like old British actors approach acting, where you're like, "Wow, you're such a great actor!" Like Michael Caine, you know, you you're so great, and he's like, "It's just what you know." My father was a stonecutter, and I'm an actor, right? So. The people that talk about sort of the art of writing and I get it like I've read Gabriel Garcia Marquez like I know what writing as art is and if, to the degree that people think that what I do is artistic it's not affected by me it's mostly that's just how I write but my editors will say that my great gift is if they need 465 words I can give them 465 words which is because I worked at that small town daily where <laughs> you know I would come back from a county commission meeting and the night editor would say, I've got however many inches, that's 760 words, and I need you to hit it. And that's what I do. Patrick complains often about people who grew up only in digital journalism, uh, having no concept of what a word count is, <laughs> or relationship with a word count, to put it that way. You've never been a beat writer, per se, but you've written a lot about sports, and you've written a lot about You've written a lot about the Preds over the years. You've been a you've been a fan. I think you've been a season ticket holder almost your entire time since you came back, or, or or a lot of that time. How have you seen kind of coverage change? How have you seen fandom change? I mean, it's a, it's a better fan base now, or a more educated fan base now, maybe than it than it was, you know, fifteen twenty years ago. H- how has all of that changed? Yeah. So. Uh, when I got back from the Navy in uh, 2006, that was a pretty lean time for the Predators off the ice. Actually, on the ice, they were pretty good. You know, there was the worries about Basili and, and all that. So at that time, the attitude was there was a lot of we have to prove that we belong stuff from both the fans and the organization. And I think that was reflected a lot in the coverage. And I think that probably lasted longer than it needed to. I complain a lot about hockey fans in the South, like adopting Canadiana and like you know, the need to like express your love for poutine. And I say that, that sounds like a joke, but that's like a real thing that people are like, I love poutine. And I'm like, you are from Lawrenceburg, uh, you know, or wherever. <laughs> so I think th- there was a, an idea that we had to like constantly and over and over improve ourselves the three times that we were on TV a year, you know, and obviously things changed pretty, pretty boldly with going to the cup final. But I think it really probably started when they hired Tom Sigaran and Sean Henry whatever year that was two years before that. So 14, 15. And because I think those guys having both come, came from Dallas and Sigrand's case and uh, from Tampa and Sean's case were successful teams that were in the Sun Belt And they were like, we don't need to make this like Toronto with humidity, like just 
be yourself. So eventually, of course, like between the All-Star game and then the Cup and then the President's Trophy, I think from the other cities in the league, I think they just sort of accepted that like Nashville isn't going anywhere and they're here and this is fine. They developed this culture over almost 20 years uh, at that time. And I think the fans started to sort of be like, oh, well, we can relax and just be ourselves and not like pretend that we've had this team for like 150 years. And I find that very, very, very refreshing. The other change is, of course, the team has persisted because it's persisted, right? So I'll use my cousins as an example, who he was probably seven or eight in 1998 when the team got here, which is exactly like the time, like their academic studies that say that is when you create a lifelong connection to a sports team is when you're eight. So now he's however old that would be in his early thirties. And he is a successful finance guy for a healthcare company and is, you know, got money to spend. And so it's only natural to him, right. To go to hockey games. Whereas before there were these things where we have to draw people in and we have to convince them to go to hockey games. Well, we now have people who are in their, their twenties and thirties who have no concept of a town without the predators. Like it's just, like walking down the street for them. Of course, I'm going to go to the hockey game. I'm going to hockey games for 25 years. And so that was going to always happen, I think, as long as the team stayed here and it did. Uh, Media-wise, we have hockey writers now uh, and not converted football writers. And, and, and I say that, obviously, meaning no insult to people like Mike Organ who covered the team because Mike Organ knows everything. <laughs> you know, I mean, Mike Organ has covered everything for the last 40 years. So... And he did a great job with the Predators, and he knows a lot about the Predators. But now, I mean, I was, I was, a, I'm a football radio host who I happen to have some hockey in my background, but like I had never covered the the Predators when I started working for the local station in 2016. Right. Like I was a converted foot. I'll I'll put my hand up and be that guy. Well, there were a lot of football writers here. There were, I mean, that's you know, I I remember growing up and listening to Plaster on whatever station he was on as a kid, and like in the summertime, it was. We'd have high school football coaches on, which is just inconceivable to me now. I could have the biggest sports talk show in town. But uh, so, I, you know, I think now between really starting probably with when the Tennessee and hired uh, Josh Cooper in, oh, but it's been about 10 years probably. Um, yeah, I think it was 12. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, Josh is a, is a New York guy who grew up with hockey and had a hockey background. Adam Biggin was the same way, obviously, though, from Northern Virginia. So, now we can, our, our local media, our, the local daily paper record can hire someone who already knows about hockey and doesn't have to teach a prep football writer how to write about hockey. So I think the coverage is a lot better now. I mean, and then there's people like the greatest sports writer in the city, Teresa Walker, right? So you could, Teresa, if we started a professional cricket team, Teresa would be the best cricket writer in the city in about six months. But now she's seen 20 some odd years of, of Predators hockey, right? So that's institutional knowledge because she's been around that goes along with sort of guys like Bo Claire, who was there for a long time covering the Predators and, you know, Jim Diamond and some of those indie guys. It has been such a, uh, a what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like a fertile environment for developing writers that you have guys like, I've been around long enough to remember when Robbie Stanley was a, in high school and his dad would have to drop him off at the arena for him to go to the press box for his little blog. And now you know, he's got a radio show and he works for the NHL for NHL.com and all this other stuff. So that to Robbie is like my favorite story because I was like, Robbie was like our little brother. <laughs> and now here he is, you know, with a radio show. 
I'll, I'll take first of all, I'll take the under on six months for Teresa becoming the best cricket writer. I'll take like three and a half on that. Yeah, well, it depends um, on when it falls in the year. Yeah, you know, right. <laughs> she might have to come many... camp in the Grizzlies too, so you never know. It depends on um, how many miles she's driving that that yeah. exact day. Oh man, um, Teresa in the playoffs say... is my favorite thing when she's like, "Well, I got this game, and then I got to drive to Oklahoma City for a Grizzlies game afterwards." Yeah, yeah. How um how do writers view TV people and radio people? Uh, I try to to view them on their own merits. <laughs> And not, I mean, and I, this is a great question for a guy like me who writes about everything because there are lots of sharp radio and TV sports people and you're going to put me on the spot and I'm not going to be able to come up with any names. But let's Don't just, say any names. Don't say any names. <laughs> let's just say that I think there are a lot of great ones. And then, of course, the news part of my brain is like, oh, TV news, haircuts. I mean, with the, some obvious exceptions, right? Like. I mean, like Phil Williams is somebody who's just basically unassailable. So, so I, I instead try to say, well, that's a good reporter or that's a, you know, a good sports talk radio person. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't think that comparison is fair so much because 95% of the guys on sports talk aren't like out on a beat, you know, I mean, they're good interviewers. You have to be right. But it's, you know, that's just a totally different animal from like reporting the story out. It's not even in, in the same universe, really. Day. What about, your question <laughs> well it's just it's the only reason it strikes me is because um I, first of all i do think writing is a, a unique skill and some people just have it or, or otherwise i do agree that it's a completely different animal altogether being in the entertainment opinion world versus the reporting world but you but but steve asked you about media coverage and how it's evolved and like every single person you named was a writer oh, and well, yeah. I, <laughs> I just was i just was curious like, so, like yeah, do I mean, we ex- do we exist, Jr. Is basically yes, what I'm asking. You exist. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I took that a little personal in your brain. Yeah, no, you, not not actually. I don't I mean, at all. You have because... to think, though. You know, <laughs> the other thing that that I think was a blessing for Nashville was for so long, and this is obviously like play by play and not necessarily like commentary stuff. But for so long, our play by play guys for hockey in particular were the same people. I mean, it was Pete and Terry forever and ever and ever and ever. And then you know when they made the change. Willie came in who'd been around for a long time and had been waving from his seat in the third row for 15 years by that point. And by that point we had retired players that had stayed here. And I think that's been a real advantage because I think how Gill is great. I think Chris is great. I think there's probably a whole bench of retired players that have stayed here that they can call on as they need to sort of rotate people around. So on that end, again, I think that's just an organic thing that was always going to happen that we just sort of had to wait for we were blessed that in the meantime, we had Terry Crisp to be with Pete and they're both obviously like legendary figures. So, you know, I think that may be part of the reason why he felt comfortable retiring, or maybe he looked and realized I've been in professional hockey for 65 years and like, maybe I should take some time off or whatever. But uh, <laughs> So yeah, I think the the future there is very good because I, I think both Hal and Chris are, are very sharp and entertaining guys uh, who can fill that role that, that crispy filled and what crispy did for us for so long was he was teaching us about the game in a very basic way. So going to players, particularly a goalie and particularly a, a brainy sort of stay at home defenseman, like how Gill, it's almost like having a backup catcher who always make the best analysts in baseball because mm. they watch more baseball than anybody. So, <laughs> or like why, why safeties always make good football coaches, right? The same, it's the same thing because they're always in the back and they always see everything. So I think we are ready for that sort of analysis because we are, have sort of graduated 
uh, as a fan base to to needing a little more of that in-depth stuff. Do you feel the same way personally about all the other sports teams? You have a very different affinity for the Predators than you do the other stuff, right? Well, yeah, and part of that is that I actually know less about hockey than I do about the other sports. So it's easier for me to to be particularly fanish about the Predators because I don't – I mean, of course, I know when things go wrong, but I've got 25 years of watching hockey and I've got 41 years of watching football. So my attitude is different. Of course, I love the Titans because – I don't have a choice, right? I mean, <laughs> we're bored into it. And also, you know, having gone to Alabama, Derrick Henry's there and having gone to middle and mm. Evan Byard's there, like I have connections to like the two best players <laughs> through my school. No, my, my attitude is definitely different. Although as a Nashville sports guy, like I am used to disappointment a lot. And uh, I'm starting to get into SC. Like, and it's not, I'm not one of these people who's like, I don't like soccer. Steve knows I love soccer. I'm not used to watching soccer at a normal time of day. Uh, so that's a, that's a big change for me. Yeah. Well, you were, and you, you have a fairly developed Fulham yeah. uh, fandom yeah. from your time. And when you were in the Navy, you were, you were stationed in England. Right. Yeah. So uh, I got to England in 2004, uh, in January of 2004, in the middle of the transfer window, which is an important part of this story. But this was for those of you listening and watching who have a long English Premier League sort of or a U.S. men's national team memory will will know in the mid to early 2000s it was full America right they Bocanegra was there and uh, eventually Landon was there and Clint Dempsey was there and like is Landon there or am I confusing him Brian, Brian McBride was there. Uh, that's the, uh, you you gave away my story but anyway okay. so this being 2006 they would when we would transfer they would not and we had to fly in the service they wouldn't fly everybody on the same plane because obviously the terrorism threat was high so friend of mine was on a plane that was about two and a half hours after mine. So I'm at Heathrow. We have three days to get to our duty station. We had already decided we're going to spend three days in London on Uncle Sam's dime. I booked a hotel and I'm sitting around and I'm waiting at international arrivals at Heathrow. And somebody comes over the thing over the PA and says, Brian McBride, meet your party at wherever. Let her see. I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe I'm just jet lag because I was on a plane for six and a half hours, but I'm pretty sure they just said Brian McBride is going to meet somebody. So I wander up to the, where the people are coming out and there he is, American striker, Brian McBride, big as all heaven. And I was, so I asked him, I said, what are you doing? He said, Oh, well, I'm thinking about signing with the team here. And I was like, Oh, okay, cool, man. You know, whatever. I, I knew who you are. Cause I watch soccer. Uh, the next day he had signed with Fulham and I was like, had been looking for a premier league team because where I was stationed was way in the West and there's nobody really close. Uh, so that was Fulham. And lucky for me, I had adopted the team that has such a long reputation for being good natured that it is the only team in the entire country that allows home and away fans to sit together. So I, I, you know, if I had picked like Millwall or something, like I probably wouldn't have come home, you know? Uh, so <laughs> it's a, dead in Wales. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, and, and having grown up in Hendersonville, which has a pretty extensive soccer culture and won several state championships in soccer. And I was around tons of guys who played soccer. My brother-in-law won a state championship at Hendersonville in soccer. I was already familiar with soccer. We would watch the men's national team games. And there was a period of time where you could watch Man United only replays on Sports South uh, in the middle of the day on Saturday. And I was like into that. So I was like prepared to be into soccer, which was a good thing since I was going to England. So I, I was excited when the MLS said they were coming to Nashville. I was not surprised, but I was excited. Uh, it's just a different... There, these are not names that I was familiar with going in and 
you're asking me to add another team and then we couldn't go to the games for six months and you know, it's the whole thing, but yeah, uh, I am excited by them. I wish they would stop doing, speaking of Fulham, doing the Fulham thing and giving the game up in the 85th minute. Conceding late goals. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, here's the plan. Take your five-year-old so that you have to leave in the 82nd minute and you never see the concession. Oh, like it, that's genius. It, it never, I've never seen them give but up yeah. a lead. <laughs> what, they're like, they're like 68. No, right. Yes. Um, my daughter my daughter has never seen them give up a goal it's great <laughs> she, she thinks they're good um what is it about your brain that makes you such a good generalist like what is it is it like what, why is it that you that, that that's how you work so well i don't know uh so uh i don't know uh i know that i read and read a lot my parents were both school teachers. My mother is a math teacher and my math performance disappointed her, but my dad was a history teacher. So I was always sort of in that environment. But as to the mechanics of why my brain works like that, I don't know. I know I can, and Steve can tell you this, I've frustrated editors with 65 word parentheticals in the middle of a 15 word sentence. Um, you know, I think it, it's it, just the price of doing business. Yeah. That's just kind of what you have to deal with with me. But I, and I, I speak that way often. I, so I think it has it, a benefit I know it is not something that is repeatable and it is probably not what if you were teaching somebody how to be a reporter, <laughs> you would teach them how to do it. But it has allowed me to sort of, I hate this word, but there, there's a brand to being me. Uh, and I think that's probably part of it. Um, so yeah, I don't know why I'm, I'm glad my brain works like that. I'm glad I can name rattle off Holy Roman emperors like, uh, and the, lineup of the 27 Yankees in the same sentence and sometimes serving a broader point, but I don't know how to tell anybody how to do that other than just read a lot of books. <laughs> well, it's useful if, for instance, you want to be a multi-day champion on De on Jeopardy. That's right. Instance. I was a two-day Jeopardy champion in 2010. I got a call at uh, the old city paper post scene offices in Grasmere about three weeks after I started working there. Here it was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, I got to go and be on Jeopardy for a while. So he was like, all right, all right I guess that's good. But, I, you know, that, that does give you some chops early on when you're starting in a big city after having been a small town newspaper guy. Like You're like, well, I'm going to be gone for a while because I'm going to be on Jeopardy. So listen to me when I get back. Well, when, you, when, when you went out after the sec, uh, after, I guess, uh, I guess on the third day, what was the what was the question that you you regret the most? Like, what's so, the one you want back? Well, there's not ones I want back necessarily there. There was, was there a category? Was there a category that you were like? No, that it, category just killed me. It, well, so one of the the challengers that day was a art teacher from Brooklyn, and mm -hmm. there was in Double Jeopardy, there was a category on art heists, and a category <laughs> on Woody Allen movies. Uh, <laughs> not was, fair. That's like, not fair. I was like, it's like the Cliff Clavin thing, right? Mothers. So, <laughs> so I had gotten a question right in in art heists, like the. Two four six, but at the time, so it was like the eight hundred dollar question, and I was like, I'm going to go away from art heights because of this guy over here, and I went and did something else, and he beat me on a pretty easy question, and he went back to art heights and he got the daily double. Would have been the next question down if I had continued. It gets worse <laughs> because the daily double was about the Stiglitz collection, um, oh. <laughs> and then so oh. so then he was like, oh, that's fun. He got it, of course. Got the Daily Double. Then he went to the Woody Allen movies, and it was about uh, the Purple Rose of Cairo, which I had just watched in a film class. Well, not just watched because I hadn't been in college, but I had watched that movie in a film class. So he got back-to-back -back Daily Doubles on two two questions, including one that was about something that I had written like three stories about. 
So there wasn't anything I necessarily regret on that third day. Sounds Other like you're pretty pissed about it, actually. Yeah, I still think about it. No, no. <laughs> Other than I should have just continued in the category. But yeah, that was a great experience, man. And uh, is not something a lot of people can say they do. And very few of them can say that they won. And even fewer can say they won more than one time. So. Lamestream Sports is brought to you by Jaspers. Always brought to you, dear listener, by Jaspers jaspers folks free game room free parking the food the food continues to evolve and i cannot wait to see what they do next because it's the next evolution of the sports bar that's what i was going to say steve i was going to say those words but you took them right out of my mouth um it's what i do it's what it's what you do uh no like even when if i think back to like the first iteration of the menu and i'm like man that was great and then it just keeps getting better you're like oh now we have mexican street corn pizza okay that sounds delicious we started with barbecue. Barbecue. We started with barbecue. I put the I put the O from pork into into barbecue all at one time. Um, uh, barbecue. Would, it would be great if you could get wild pig and call it barbecue. Ooh, Traylon Burks would love that. Traylon Burks would love that. Tra- Traylon Burks would. Tra- be too Traylon much. Burks Traylon. is probably. That's probably how he came into camp. In, in yeah. He was out hunting. Uh, all right. All right. Out hunting your, wild boar. There's your fat Traylon Burks joke for the, the episode. You get one per episode. Um, uh, who looks, by the way, six pounds lighter and very good at camp. Um, so I'm just saying you started with sweet potato barbecue fries with like fancy drizzly sauces on top. And, and then you evolved to Mexican street corn pizza. You've also got brunch. You've got happy hour. You've got the game room. You've got the grab and go market. They're, they have a spot for you, your friends, your family, for all occasions. Um, it is the five-tool player of sports bars, but it's not really a sports bar because it is, in fact, the next evolution yeah. of the sports bar. That's right. We are constantly progressing here in Nashville. And as JR has talked about on this episode, not always for the better, but Jasper's always for the better. Go to, go to Jasper's. One of the things that one of the things that uh, you've done is you've written about some kind of esoteric sort of things. No, uh, yeah, get out. <laughs> uh, so, like for instance, the the name of your sports column for a long time at the scene was was the Hippodrome. And for for those folks who don't know what the Hippodrome is, it was not the <laughs> Olds dealership here in town. Uh, I mean, although it was named Hippodrome Olds. Yeah, I was gonna say it was it was it was, it was an old dealership but yeah so the hippodrome was uh a public what we would now call an arena it just wasn't very big it was where the uh what is it now is it still a holiday inn there in front of right in front of vanderbilt right in front of the where yep. the stadium is uh where the commodore grill is so it was the the sports building in the city for decades really until they built the sports arena at the fairgrounds for essentially for Nick Goulas who had been running wrestling shows at the Hippodrome for years and years and years until Vanderbilt built Memorial. You know, they played basketball there and really, it, I mean, it famously hosted wrestling and famously was used as a roller rink, but you know, it hosted everything, basically anything above preps that was in Nashville and even some preps that didn't have their own gym, you know, played at the Hippodrome. So was that an esoteric reference? Probably to anybody under the age of 80, uh, but, uh, <laughs> there was a there, there was a great gag that you had it, it ended up being a, for a long time on twitter although i think you had like a site dedicated to it 
Yeah. When the when the conferences change names before, but bef- I think I think it's, it was before they had actually come up with what the names actually were. Yeah. So when the NHL realigned, and it was after it was after uh, Atlanta moved to Winnipeg, they were gonna. They originally said we're gonna go to four conferences. Now, obviously, that isn't how that ended up. They went to they kept the standard two conferences with two divisions each. And they had like some names early on, like obviously one of them was going to be Atlantic and one of them was going to be Pacific. I mean, that was just the way it is. If you look at the geography of hockey or really any sports league, but the other two, one of them ended up being the Metro, which is still the honestly dumbest name in the history of divisions. Even when the NHL named them after people, which was even weirder. I don't know. Legends and leaders. Oh man. I forgot about legends and leaders. Oh God. So good. The leaders division might be worse than Metro division (laughs) leaders. (laughs) Oh, was Penn state in the leaders division? Uh, Let's move on. Uh, So uh, (laughs) I like how you looked up, like you could possibly remember who was the leaders and legends. So for what became the central division, they just said conference three with three Roman numerals. And I thought that was the most hysterical thing, because when you looked at who was in it, it was the most, uh, are we, are we PG 13? Yeah, No, go for it. It was the most batshit collection of teams that you could possibly imagine. Right. I mean, there was Nashville who everybody was suspicious of still there was Dallas who everybody was suspicious of for stealing Minnesota. There was Minnesota who still had expansion stink on it. Like 25 years later. There was Winnipeg, who everybody was like, all right, well, that's cool, but you're really just Atlanta. And then there was Chicago, which had won like three cups in a row at the time or whatever. I mean, it was, and St. Louis, so, which is just a misfit. So it was really like this island of misfit toys collection of teams that they were like, well, uh, everybody's sort of in the middle of the country-ish, I guess, y'all be in a division. I mean, and this, and all of this was created because, of course, like Detroit didn't want to be in the West anymore. They wanted to, to play in the East because they thought they could make more money that way, quite frankly. And they've been relevant ever since. <laughs> yeah, they've been so good. They had a great summer, though. You can you can thank Shea Weber for that. Yeah. That Shea Weber took Nicholas Listener's hand, and that was the end of it. Well, and, you know, what happened that day, speaking of sidelong parenthetical, the day that the Predators knocked the Red Wings out of uh, the playoffs and he shook Nick Listner's hand and Nick Listner immediately retired was also the day that my daughter was born. At 11 pounds. So Nick Lidstrom was like, no, no more. No, I'm done. <laughs> they're, they're having 11 pound babies in Nashville. So, uh, uh, yeah. That, so, is a, that is a large baby. <laughs> she was huge. She was so big that nurses were coming in from other deliveries. Uh, and we're like, whoa. You got you to see this. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Columbus and Detroit were like, we're going to be in the East. And that left like this weird sort of like vertical collection of teams for some reason nashville was not in a division with carolina and the two florida teams even though that makes most sense to anybody so i was like well conference three is like and it, they were these were all like knife fight teams at the time too with the exception of chicago like these were this was some rough rough business that was happening so yeah i had a i had a cult blog about uh the the central division for a couple of years called conference three and and that was a lot of fun but that it, ended up being a lot of work with a, a you know, job and a child who yeah, yeah. did more than sleep all of a sudden. So, um, but yeah, that, that was such a part of my legacy. There were some things in there. This is, this was, has been the big change for the predator since Nashville has changed. And since they have become like a hot ticket is they were putting like conference three jokes on the jumbotron. And that was when the whole thing happened with, we decided that Anders Lindback was like a big child, former 
Predators backup goalie, Anders Lindback, who like loved candy. And they did this whole, you know, when they auctioned off like the, the baskets or whatever for the Preds Foundation, like Anders Lindback's was like full of candy and he had to like hawk it. And he, he completely, he did not understand why he was being asked <laughs> to do this. I had, I did a, like a lineal championship, right? Like a championship built. And Carter Hutton won a game one time in the press conference said that he was happy to be able to, to get the Conference three championship belt back. And I mean, it was just mind boggling stuff that was like, that was, it was like this perfect time period where they were popular enough that it was like a big cult, but it wasn't just so blown out like it is now that you, there, there were inside jokes that could be made between fans and also that like people in the organization would, you know, acknowledge that existed. I mean, I, uh, Peter Horacek, a former uh, assistant coach, he always did the second period intermission interview, which is, and he always looked like he wanted to come through the camera and choke Pete and Terry for making him do this intermission interview. So I created this whole character that he was like this like bandit who, you know, ripped people apart, like when the camera was off. And he made some crack about uh, not so terrifying now, am I, JR, like during a hit one time. And I was just like, this is like become <laughs> beyond me. Right. Uh, yeah. So that was a fun time period. And that, and, but I think all that changed, uh, you know, I think for the better. I think it's good that the team has grown beyond like 20,000 insane people to being less, fewer in fewer levels of insanity, but but broader. Do you think that that, I, I think there is something unique and particular about those periods of time within a sport and its fandom. Like we're sort of in that with Nashville SC right now. I think college baseball yeah, has a, has a lot of this. I think you're you're going to see this. I don't know. I think F1 is having their moment right now with this, where sort of it feels counterculture-ish and and it's yeah. different and it's left of center. And Nashville sort of got like an inherent counterculture vibe in general to some degree, although that's eroding. It feels like as more and more people are are moving here. Is that is that all it is? Is it just sort of youthful exuberance and timing where you can find a fan base in a group and following something at a, at a certain period of time where you can create a dynamic like that. Cause I don't, you can't do that for the Dallas Cowboys right no, now. Like no, that's no. nobody's making inside jokes about the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah. I think there is, there is a period where it has grown a little bit beyond those early diehards to create people who are, who are just as diehard, but maybe, maybe I don't want to say it's not central to their identity. So they are more willing to sort of play around with it. And you do start to see that a little bit with SC. Somehow, I have not gotten talkers to take off as well as I wanted to, Steve. And I need <laughs> you to help me. Well, uh, no. no. Um, <laughs> I, he, I he thought about it for one second. No, no, no. no. Uh, but yeah, some people, some the some some people keep trying to make coyotes happen. Oh no, which, NLS tries to make coyotes happen, and I that's even worse. That's that's uh, terrible. Although, although I mean, and I've mentioned this before, you have to love Tempo, the mascot that came from a meme. My, oh, yeah. my my five-year-old loves the mascot okay her and steven elliott she doesn't uh, know she doesn't know that it was trapped in the music city center for days but like <laughs> she, but she but, but she loves it and then mrs tempo shows up and she goes wild oh, there's a mrs and tempo now there, there was a second tempo uh on one of the games i took her to and she oh my god yeah it oh, was a big wow. it, a whole ordeal um all right more more randomness here with with jr yeah. lind of course your steeplechase piece for the first time in living in Nashville for 20, I've been in Nashville since 1997. I've been here 25 years. It's the first time I read your story and it was the first time I ever actually wanted to go. Can you explain to people how this event has changed I, and evolved? 
I'm, I'm sorry. We're going to disappoint him so badly, aren't we? I'm sorry <laughs> for this, Braden. I really am. <laughs> See, the problem is, is the problem that was is what, this. 2011, probably? It was 2012. Uh, it was, that was my favorite. I have like, from when I was the editor of City Paper, I have a couple of favorite pieces. And that's, I think that's one of the one or two that you could still get online because the City Paper archives are not online. Yeah, that's and so, reprinted in the scene a couple of times. I think that's so. So when I w- when I became scene editor, the first thing I did was republish it in the scene, so that there were so that it would always sort of live online. Because I love I, I, that's that is that is one of my favorite uh, things she ever written. If you haven't written, I mean, if you haven't read it, uh, it is. I think the headline was uh, "Keep Your New South, I'll Be on the Hill." Yeah, uh, and it was about it was about kind of old Nashville and the steeplechase. And it's just, it's quite, it's quite a good piece. It's the only time I've ever wanted to go. And if you went today and tried to sit on the Hill, it gets worse because that piece ended up being Chronicle of a Death Foretold because there is no more hill seating. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So that piece is, I thought that was a, a pretty, in hindsight, I think that that spoke a lot to the moment that we were in then, which was early sort of, uh it's city kind of stuff and early on for you know finance bros moving here and the city was having to reckon with that or should have reckoned with it it didn't and the whole point was when the siebel chase started in in the 30s or 40s there were only two places to sit you either sit in a box which is still there and box invitations are like willed i mean like this is not a joke these are When when I say the, the families that are in the box, it's family. That, these are people who think the frists are new money. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, and it took the frists a, a long time to get a box. Like I, this is a real thing. So there's only the boxes and the hill. There were only two classes of people in Nashville to go watch the horse race. You were either money that was so old that it was falling apart, or you were everybody else. Well, of course. And I don't blame the Siebel Chase for making money, obviously, because it benefits the children's hospital. So don't get me wrong. But, you know, then they added the infield, which was essentially started for people who were in boxes that had too many kids that or the kids were at the age they didn't want to, like, be with their parents. They wanted to be with their friends. And that's where the infield started. Then they have all these tents, which is really like finance bro stuff. And the hill, of course, necessarily kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Because I think at that time, in 2012, I mean, it was still 15 bucks, right? Yeah. 15 bucks, and you could sit on the hill and drink from nine until four, and nobody would bother you. And you could you could essentially bring your own. Yeah, you could own... do anything you want as long as it wasn't glass. So, right. and you would get all kinds of people in there. I mean, and that was something I was trying to capture because I accurately, it turned out, realized that the hill was eventually going to be subsumed by all of these other you know, money making opportunities. And I was right. But yeah. Um it is 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 this event and that story and how it's unfolded over 40 years, is that not like the metaphor for the entire town? Yeah. Uh, I think I was trying for that when I wrote it. And I think when I read it again and I, you know, Steve does a good job of posting it the second weekend in May every year. Um I read it again and I realize that, you know, I I'm gonna quote Buckley here, but he, you know, you stand or forward history and you'll stop is what I was trying to do. Uh, and nobody listened. So even like some of the elements that are in there seem dated because it talks about things that have, you know, a, a sort of character of the city that has been lost even since then. 
What does it? What does the city look like when 120 acres of land next to downtown have been developed into a new Titans complex? What What does that? What does that do? Well, I think that's fine because <laughs> ideally it will mean getting rid of an eyesore they've been trying to get rid of for 70 years. Now, you know, I I, I get it. Like that, th- there is a a process by which cities grow and change, and I, I'm not sure that building a new football stadium for example is like the wisest way for us to spend money when we haven't grappled with 12 years of growth as it is so to the degree that it it's a you know i I don't even think it's a boondoggle for one thing we wouldn't have to replace nissan stadium if it had not been 10 years out of date the second it opened in the first place but spending that kind of money we're going to do it i mean that's the other thing is that i've realized in the last you know post-flood certainly since I started working here in 2009, is that there, there is no... When was the last time something was stopped here? Transit. <laughs> I, 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 do what? Well, transit. <laughs> well, right. Okay. Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> and I was actually not in favor of the Amp. Steve will remember that. And I certainly was not in favor of, of the Barry plan. But that's for, like, dorky transit reasons rather than... Something right, right. Not actual. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so there's a resignation with things like the Titans are going to build a new stadium and we're going to be on the hook for it or the state's going to be on the hook for it or maybe not because we're not going to let them have the RNC. Who knows? But the, that kind of stuff bothers me a lot less than just like the wholesale destruction of actual historic things (laughs) or, you know, or the glass and steelification of everything that made the city sort of like grungy and funny for a while. So what, what, what are the thing like, the Rutledge would be one I point to sure. um, as, I mean, as, some, as something that I miss. Like what, what, what are, what are the things you want people to remember that, that they cannot see right now? If somebody's listening to this and doesn't know all this stuff, what are the things? Oh man. Well, I mean, you know, I look at things like the gold rush, right. Which was just a stinky bar where you can smoke inside on, on the rock block, which I would enjoy the rock block while you can. Yeah. And I, and I think about that because one night and probably the summer of 2012, 2013, I don't know. I went to see Jason and the Scorcher at the exit end, uh, who I've seen dozens of times. But this was a, a benefit for their drummer's family because he had finally passed away, Perry, who also worked at the Tennessean uh, in the library at the Tennessean years and years ago. He had, and they were, So they were doing a benefit for him. And the only other person I knew there was Jim, uh, Jim Ridley. And uh, I forget who the opener was, but he was like, I'm hungry, do you want to go to the gold rush and i was like well i've eaten but i'll go have a beer while you eat so in a single night like i saw jason and the scorchers at the exit in with jim ridley and had a bean roll with jim ridley at the gold rush and then we went back and watched jason and the scorchers so i get that that's like a pretty specific memory but it's also like a forrest gump sort of moment right <laughs> where it's like all of these like super super nashville things that were really formative to me as a teenager uh and into my 20s and you know I mean, Jim was part of that before he was my boss. All of that happened. And now the accident is going to be a, a, what, a boutique hotel? I mean, AJ Capital can say they're going to do whatever they're going to do with it, but we all know what it's really going to be. Gold Rush is closed. Although apparently there are places where you can get bean rolls. Like the bean roll guy from the Gold Rush, like, sells bean rolls at other restaurants. It's like a pop-up situation. That's interesting. I'll leave that to This was a whole thing on the internet for a while. Yeah, so when I talk about like like losing the history, I don't just mean things like the Boyd House, which Fisk and and 
Dr. Williams, and I'll even take a soupçon of credit for, for helping that story get out. Or and James I, K. Polk's grave. James K. Polk's grave, which I am taking all the credit for. Uh, <laughs> still on the Capitol grounds because of me. I'm not talking about those things that are <laughs> things that have that are history for everybody who lives here, right? Because all of the things that are nobody is alive who remembers James K. Polk dying. There might be somebody alive who remembers Sarah dying because she lived like a long time. No, I'm kidding. But she did live a long time. So and there's nobody alive who remembers the parties at the Boyd House in the twenties when Nashville was developing a black middle class. And you know, I'm not just talking about those things. I'm talking about things like I know plenty of people who have seen shows at the XN. I know plenty of people who have been to the Gold Rush. I know plenty of people who've been to the Rutledge. I know it and on and on and on. And it's like, what are we giving up to have an Amazon headquarters or whatever Amazon is bringing here? What are we? What is the sacrifice that we have to make to have a Top Golf or for Oracle to do whatever it is they do? I think Eli wrote a story in the scene recently explaining what Oracle does, and I read it. And this is through no fault of his own. I still don't know. Uh, <laughs> But I mean, it's good. They're good jobs, I guess. But and I think there are neighborhoods where that fight to save things has been a lot more successful while still allowing sort of things that need to happen in a city that's growing that doesn't have enough housing. Like I look at there are parts of Germantown that have been preserved to the degree that they can be. Now, there are parts of Germantown that are ugly brick and steel, but there are still old buildings in Germantown that have been cared for and in Salem Town and farther back up. And and there are even parts of, of more euphemistically called North Nashville that I think are in danger of being lost. And I, I think of people like Dr. Williams at TSU who are trying to make sure that doesn't happen, that these buildings can be, technical term I think is adaptive reuse, right? Even if you save this house and it's an accountant's office and you're like, oh, well, this is gentrification because this is an accounting firm in this old house. Well, it's not a pile of rubble anymore, you know? <laughs> the house is still there. So, yeah. I, you know, I think it's goofy that there are hotels in East Nashville that are in those beautiful old churches next to East Park. And I'm never going to go to those hotels. But the way I am experiencing those buildings hasn't changed, right? They they still yeah. are the churches that are there. And they are still there. And they have not been replaced by something that looks like a cardboard box covered in aluminum foil. So, you know, there have been successes, I think, in that preservation space. I think a lot has been lost. <laughs> and I think, yeah. and I don't mean just that physically. I think there's a lot of sort of the, the fabric of the city that we never stopped and said, wait five minutes. <laughs> think about this. You know, we, we were closed for 18 months and nobody thought for a moment that we should change anything that had happened. And then, when it comes back and, you know, Broadway is worse than ever before and it's a nightmare down there in public safety ways and in just sort of garishness ways, there were ways that could have been addressed while nothing was happening. And it, it just wasn't. So the city has, it's, that moment is gone now. Like it, I, there's no opportunity for, for bringing it back. Play play like assignment editor here for a second. Okay. You're leaving town. There's a there's a number of stories that you've wanted to write but couldn't get to. You finally got to this. Uh, you should go check out in the scene last year. You finally got this Irish traveler. <laughs> Irish traveler story after ten years. 
uh, after uh, talking about it for 10 years, yeah. uh, finally, finally got it out. What, what other stories are kind of rattling around your brain that you would love for somebody to write? Uh, well, I mean, the, the other one that I've always wanted to write it will be in the scene tomorrow. So it, it's about the summer Paul McCartney spent in Lebanon. And I was able to get a lot of great stuff from Nashville broadcast legend Mike Bohan, who was like 20 years old. Mike and Bohan. Interviewing to- Paul McCartney on the porch of Curly Putnam's Farm. So, you know, that was another one. That, what was the other story? Oh, well, we did the Ernest story, which I was so proud of. Uh, and that was another story I wanted to write. So I, I'm trying to think if there is it's something that I just never got around to. I mean, my answer would have always been the Irish traveler story. And I finally wrote it. And nobody was more amazed than I, that you finally wrote the damn <laughs> no, thing. Well, Tom Wood was, Tom Wood was more amazed than you were. He was like, <laughs> I thought, I thought that was like the MacGuffin of your journalism career that you were always just going to be like, eventually I'm going to get to this. Wow. I don't know. See, that's a tough one. Uh, this is why I've never been an editor because I can't think of things like that. You know how I come up with stories. I talk about something for like 25 minutes and then eventually I have to write a 5,000 word story about it. So that because you and Patrick were tired of hearing me talk. Oh man. Oh, oh. great. 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 Great podcast here to stump yeah. you here. Right. Yeah. Right yeah, thanks, okay, I can cut it. I can cut out some of the sound. It's fine. I, I would love for someone. I've never heard a good, this would be a 500 word story. I'd love to know why there's a cricket field in North Nashville at, um, I can't think of the park's name now, the park over there by Metro Center. It's a pretty good oval that's pretty well built, and but and I know where people play cricket in town, and they don't play there. So why is there a cricket oval maintained by Metro Parks? That would be, a, I have so many unanswered questions. Uh, whatever happened to the Nashville Port Authority is one I've been trying to figure out for a while. It's technically still ex- exists. But you could just submit all these to Tony Gonzalez over at Curious Nashville now. Oh, well, so <laughs> Tony, <laughs> Tony oftentimes will email me what he's working on Curious Nashville. And he'll be like, do you know about this? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, okay. Because I once asked, I actually once submitted, why was there a 22nd, why is 22nd Street in West Nashville? Uh, those of you who've lived in Nashville for any period of time know that avenues are on the west side of the river. Numbered avenues are on the west side of the river. Numbered streets are on the east side of the river. On your way to the nations from Charlotte Park, there is a small street, 22nd Street. It is not connected to the street, the rest of the grid in any way. But I figured it out in a walk a mile one time. I figured out why. Because in the olden days, when the city of Nashville stopped at what is now 38th Avenue, what is now 39th Avenue was First Street in Newtown, West Nashville, what we now call Sylvan Park and Sylvan Heights. If you count from there and imagine that there used to be a grid of streets all the way back to where this 22nd Street is, that was 22nd. They renumbered the streets, obviously, when West Nashville was annexed into the city, for in part because if you didn't, you would have two first streets, one on each side of the river. Well, by the time they got to the last numbered street is 56th. And after that, you know, they just let it go. Well, all those streets got paved over. They were never gridded. But 22nd persisted, and you can still live on 22nd Street in West Nashville if you really want to. And I assume these days, if you have eight hundred fifty thousand dollars, these are these are the important questions of yeah. our of our time. I mean, this, um, so right, you don't understand. This bothered me for years. No, and this is this is why this is why because it feels like I am watching your brain. This is our twenty five minute conversation yeah. as to how you ended up with Walk a Mile because yeah. it is it is about like this battle between the new and the old and the evolution of the city of Nashville. It is your, it is your natural curiosity about these bizarre, weird idiosyncrasies about our city. Uh, why there's it a is, neighborhood that looks like a 
Hollywood and East Nashville? Yeah, I've, my wife and I want to live. We want oh, to live. Yeah, we want to live there so badly. Um, and it's like half a mile away from our house, and yeah. we just can't. You can't get in there. It's impossible. Um, but what's what's? It seems like you. All of this is all of who you are in this career has led you to this walk a mile thing. Again, from an outsider's perspective, yeah. uh, it it feels like that's where this came from. Was just all these forces converging in your head, and and this is what came out of it. And and I don't know that. I, there, that was not ever a goal. Basically, what happened was for years, and Headline Homes still exists, but it's purely in the post now. Headline Homes is a list of the top 10 priciest homes sold in the previous month. And I, can you tell I've written this boilerplate language before? In Nashville and surrounding counties, Tom Wood started it years and years. I mean, before I even started with the post. So it certainly predates 2009. It's real estate porn. Who yes. got who got really pissed about this recently? Didn't oh, well, I got, really I, well at various points. Various people. Well, various people. Uh, well, oh, can I say there? I'll put it this way. There no, is, no, you, no, you can no, go ahead say, say the it. name, dude. Well, okay. Well, this was not me, but a certain guy who works for CBS who wants to remind oh, yeah. you that he's your friend every time you're watching the match. It's a march to madness. That's uh, who it was. Yeah, he was not happy about his name and address being. In headline homes, when he bought his house, he was also not happy when it was in there when he sold his house. Uh, I mean, that's the price of having your own golf hole in Pebble Beach Golf Course. I'm well, sorry, I mean, like when you have when you have your own hole of golf in the Pebble Beach, yeah, you, be- you're beach resort, your name in the it, It's price price of doing business, man. <laughs> so, so headline homes existed, and I wrote it for years and years. I uh, after Tom had left, uh, I took it over, and then I was gone. But then. When I started freelancing before I came back to the scene, I wrote Headline Homes and we wrote Headline Homes. And then at some point, the decision was made that like this, first of all, Headline Homes makes a lot of sense for the Nashville Post. It's targeted those people. These are their friends. They want to know how it started to become, make less and less sense in the scene other than as a venue for selling real estate advertisement and because they were all million dollar homes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. And I also wrote Headline Homes in a period of time where like, We'd have like $2 million homes because, again, I was a real estate reporter during the biggest real estate downturn in 70 years. So I also don't think there's ever going to be a – like there's no cap on the – we are insatiable when it comes to real estate, home flipping, home renovation yeah. stuff. Like it doesn't – like that was just pre-HGTV. That's all that was. It was just yeah, – people love that stuff. It, it, there's not going to be a cap on that topic as a subject that we love as a species. Like it's never going to – it'll be 3,022 and like we'll still be doing <laughs> – We'll still be looking at homes and renovations and shit. So we decided to find another sort of tentpole thing for the scene. And I kind of came up with this concept. You know, we talked about like, well, you should go through different neighborhoods and write about what's there and what's changed and what used to be there. And I was, but what that sort of developed into was what is actually a pretty straightforward sort of pitch is that I walk literally one mile with one exception. We did the separate jets march and that was two miles, but we walked one mile. That's okay. I write about everything from, you know, what's there, what used to be there, what the houses look like, what the architecture is, what businesses are there, what the traffic is like, where there are sidewalks or crosswalks or not. No one's will road. Please somebody at the city, please get it together with no one's will road and the lack of sidewalks and crosswalks. And uh, I mean, I write about, you know, the trees and the one, the one. And, and an essential part of this is that Eric England has, done i think i've done 31 i think he has been the photographer for 29 of them and 
people talk about how much they love walk a mile and i i love that they loved it and i love doing it and i look forward to it and but i don't there, there is a part of Walk a Mile that is Eric taking the pictures, and there is a teamwork with Eric and I that we have done this enough that he'll say, you know, find out about that building, and I'll write down the address so I can go back and find out about it, or I'll see something, and I'll, he'll see me move out of the way because he knows that that's something you should take a picture of. And Eric is another great person to do it with because Eric's worked for the scene for ever thirty years, probably. Yeah, I mean, at least forever. You know, and he's been in Nashville a long time, and there have been times where we walk and he'll say, oh, yeah, I, I had a buddy lived in that house and uh, Jimmy Buffett lived downstairs from him or, you know, like, and I'm like, all right. And like, I'll look it up. And of course then invariably it is true. So, so yeah, it's, it, you know, it's a photo essay ish sort of thing. And I, I ultimately think that will probably be what I'm remembered for. I'm doing one more. Eric and I are actually walking tomorrow morning. I hope it doesn't rain. And then we have done 32 of them. So that's, you know, two years and eight months worth. And, you know, there was talk about after I left that somebody would keep doing it, but I'm, I was honest with them. A, I would hate that <laughs> because <laughs> I mean, that, that I raised this thing from infancy, but the other is that it, it has become increasingly hard because there's, there's sort of a magic to picking out these places, right? Like you, you want to find a place where residential runs into business and where, you know, legacy structures run into new structures and, and for whatever reason, that space, that kind of space, I'm exhausting that space, right? There's, yeah. uh, especially if I, if we've been sort of conscious about making sure we're, we go, you know, as much all over the county as we can, uh, there is a lot of things like that in East Nashville in particular. And yeah, maybe you could do 30 more of them in East Nashville, but eventually that means you're going to have to do them in South Nashville too, because that area is changing in kind of the same way. And what's important about walk a mile. And what I think that I hope people take away from it is, is that these, you know, you talk about sort of like the headline areas of the city and they're like, they're changing or they're, you know, there's a lot of gentrification here and here and here. It is happening everywhere. And the, the changes that are happening in Nashville are affecting everyone. And no matter where you live, even if you live, deep in West Nashville and with, you know, with generational wealth, like the city is changing around you. And I, you know, frankly, like I think a person, even if they do live in a $2 million house, if their family has been here for 200 years or their family has been here for 50 years, or they've been here for 25 years, they have as much a right to complain about the way the city is changing or to be concerned about the way the city is changing as someone who lives in a gentrifying neighborhood who's getting driven out by developers too. Right. So it, it affects them maybe in a less like, existential way but their concerns are still valid uh so i i think to do it you had we had to rotate around all the time because otherwise you, you're gonna get real pigeonholed in and then it's like here's we're walking another mile in inglewood <laughs> so it's going to live at 32 and i can't believe that we did 32 of them i can't believe it had been it's been almost three years since we started it but it's something i'm very very proud of and i'm very i've gotten a lot of support from the scene from it we built a cool little map app you can click on it elizabeth did that elizabeth jones a great art director at the scene um yep you get all of eric's pictures which are great of course so that is going to live forever and i i i get notes from people who say here's a mile i walk you walk this and i get notes from people that say i had friends who are moving here and i send them links to that and say this is you know a way to learn about the neighborhood and it reminds me sort of of 
here's a good segue for everybody. Uh, LA Times did a great thing called Mapping LA, right? Where they, they define what the neighborhoods were. And Steve has been part of those conversations with <laughs> me and Dana thousands of times about where, you know, one neighborhood ends and another one begins. And, and Mapping LA is sort of like what Angelino sends you when you say, I'm moving to the city. What do I need to know about the neighborhoods? And, and I think Walk a Mile has become that to a degree. And, and I hope that it is. Although, again, you know, in 10 years, when I wrote, about these neighborhoods is going to be drastically different but so then maybe it becomes a time capsule i don't know i think it's an important time capsule if nothing else and uh, i think you've done a service to all of us and i have a feeling we will be seeing and reading walk a mile for years to come so uh jr yeah. thank, thank you so much man thank uh, you guys. it's been a pleasure reading you best of luck in your trip out west enjoy those taxes baby and uh, uh and we'll, and we'll and we'll talk soon. Thank you so much for giving us so much of your time and being so gracious and patient, man. Thank you. Thank you, guys. That was J.R. Lind, generalist, written for I don't God knows how many entities in Nashville. Um, I know you've worked with him very very closely, and as 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 people just heard, have tried to edit him <laughs> from time to time. Um, I, I just, you know, I, I hope people enjoyed his work while it was here. We can still go back and read all of it as is evidenced by the steeplechase piece, but it's, uh, I, I, you know, I saw, I, I saw the news, I texted him and I just said, man, I'm so happy for you. I'm, I'm congratulations, but man, what a bummer. <laughs> so I, I wanted, I, I've got the, I've got the steeplechase piece here and I just want to read, I, I re, want to read you the, the tail end of it. The, the, the title of it, if you want to, if you want to go find it is called keep your new South, I'll be on the Hill. Uh, this was originally in the city paper and you can find it on the Nashville scene site now. Uh, he, the, I, 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 I just, I just love this. You can walk the infield row after row of lifestyle brand pickup trucks and SUVs bigger than a bus stop but you won't find me there among their heirs to the boxes and downtown living friends. The ones we're apparently and unfortunately calling affluence. You won't hear me singing along to sweet home Alabama or Rocky top or wagon wheel or whatever nearly country anthem of the moment is, a, uh, is, is uh, favored among the sec fraternity row crowd. You won't see me there in croquis and topsiders. I'll be fine in my go to hell pants and bow tie on the Hill singing along with the national anthem and the Tennessee waltz. The hill gets smaller every year. They find more places to sell more expensive tickets than the 15 bucks they get from us. The hill gets squeezed. But the hill people were here before you when there was just us in the boxes. And you can try to shrink us with your new South boosterism and your fresh entrepreneurial uh, money and your it city enthusiasm. You can keep it. Give me the hill people. <laughs> I just love it. Is my, it is my, it is my favorite, one of my favorite things. Uh, uh, that I've ever had a chance to, to edit, and 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 yeah. certainly uh, one of my one of my favorite things that Jr's written. Uh, it, it you know the I, the, la the layers apply so broadly to so many yeah. things. I mean, you, you'll see me posting it again on Twitter next year for Steeplechase, a, a a an event that I frank quite frankly can't stand. But you know, a lot of people a lot of people love it. It's turned into it's turned into something really different than what it used to be. Uh, if you're ever there on the infield, by the way, don't, don't go stand in 90 degree heat and sweat, yeah. you know, sweat in, in, in a, in a, it's in like the, it's like the, 
It's like the bizarre offspring, deformed offspring of Lower Broadway. Like it's like <laughs> it's like yeah. I mean, it's it's a little bit like it's a little bit like you know, like high class Lower Broadway meets meets yes. the Derby, and yes. and it's just yeah, whatever. I, no, but, it's funny. It's funny. Like I knew it wasn't written this year. I don't think I realized it was 2012 though. Like I, yeah. is that on the byline? I didn't. I guess I should have read. Yeah, that. It, it's in a tag that's on the bottom. But the okay. problem is, is the city paper archives are not online. Yeah, yeah. Um, the 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 previous uh the previous owners um took the city paper offline because uh the, the they had we had maintained the archives for a long time and then after after I left uh they took the archives uh offline because the uh the CFO the CFO at the time was a uh, a bean counting weasel who you know didn't well, really didn't really care about the news. J- just the wagon wheel reference alone should have told me it was older than I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so. but we go back and go back and read that piece. Yeah. Go back and read JR's uh, walking out pieces. Uh, just uh, one of my favorite people uh, that I've had a chance to work with, and uh, we'll miss him a lot, and uh, wish him the best in LA. And, and I will say this: I think that walk a mile uh, entity will live on in many forms moving forward. And I think Nashville people should should take the time to enjoy it while they can. And um, I, I don't think it's going anywhere um, in terms of what the work he did, the 32, the standalone pieces that he did. I think that stuff's going to be around for a very long time in, in our city. So um, just really thankful that he was here and, and thankful that he gave us so much of his time. Uh, a lot of the fact that our interview went so long is because of him. It's his fault too. So I'll blame him for it's all for his fault, all, all the non sequiturs <laughs> as well. Um, but we do love him man. we appreciate him. Wish him the best of luck. And, uh, and it's a bummer that he's leaving. So for Steve Cavendish, my name is Braden Gold. Thanks for hanging out with us. Go to Jasper's of course, over on West end free parking next evolution of the sports bar. Jasper's is a proud supporter and, and partner of 440 Sports and Lamestream Sports. So please go check them out. Give them a listen and uh, or give them, give us a listen and a review and a subscribe and then go eat at Jasper's. Thank you guys for hanging out. Have a great weekend. Thanks to JR. Congratulations on the move. For Steve, I'm Braden. Thanks for listening. This has been Lamestream Sports.